0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz
2: every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
3: Now from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
0: It's Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. A ton of TV coming up for yours truly in the next four or five days. We'll fill you in on some of those details a bit later on today's program. Our website here, our online home for the show is easy, guybensonshow.com. All the information you need there to listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Or, if you can't catch the whole show live, there's a podcast. It is free. It is on demand every single day around the clock when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow. Twitter and Instagram. Here's our lineup today. General Jack Keene joining us in studio later this hour. General Keene will... Give us his insights on the situation in Ukraine and these escalations by Vladimir Putin that we talked about yesterday. Martha McCallum will also be here, also in studio. She's just back from the U.K. doing all the royal funeral coverage. We'll ask her about that. Katie Pavlich, also our guest in the middle hour. Hope that you will tune in for that. And in our final hour, kicking off about two hours from now, here in our D.C. studio as well, we will welcome U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas. We've had him on this show many times before, but I don't think ever face-to-face. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. As we get going today, I would like to talk about a Democrat-planted hit piece against one of our friends and colleagues here at Fox News, Bill Malugin. Bill, of course, has been covering the border for the better part of two years and doing a hell of a job of it. He is shining a light on a very serious crisis, the reasons behind it, what officials on the ground are experiencing, what the communities are absorbing every single day. And some of it is very ugly and very disturbing. And as the crisis has continued and gotten worse, for the most part in Washington, D.C., if you're a journalist or you have a D next to your name as an elected Democrat, often Very little difference between those two groups of people. You have done everything within your power to not think or talk about what's happening down there. Malugin is covering a huge national story. And at times he's been awfully lonely in doing so. We have him here regularly on the show. I talked about this earlier today on TV, on Varney, on the Fox Business Network. Clearly, some Democrats in the White House planted a story with Politico to go after Bill Malugin, And this was earlier in the week. Let me just read to you from the story. There's a tall Fox News reporter in his mid-30s with slick back hair and an air of combative indignation who is getting under the skin of some people in Joe Biden's administration. And he's not Peter Ducey. And by the way, the headline of this piece is A Doocy on the Border. Bill Malugin, a former local Los Angeles Emmy Award winning reporter, has become a growing presence online and in broader political circles as Fox's go to reporter at the U.S. southern border. He's done hundreds of television hits since joining the network last year, largely from border states, where he often focuses on the historic flow of migrants that are overwhelming communities there. It sounds like a news story. An Emmy award-winning journalist covering a giant crisis on the ground? That seems pretty legitimate to me. In recent days, the story goes on, several current and former White House administration officials expressed to to West Wing Playbook, this is what I'm reading from, their increasing frustration with Melugin's on-air coverage, arguing that there's an alarmist quality to it designed to feed political narratives rather than illuminate the actual issues feeding the migrant flow. The story goes on to complain that Malugin is young and therefore technologically savvy, and so he has used very effectively social media to convey the problem using footage, for example, caught by Fox cameras or drones, which seems like just using technology to do the job better, to accurately portray what is happening with visuals, right? Just saying words and statistics, which is what we have to do here on this show. It's the radio. It's less powerful. It's less potent. It's less illustrative than having images that go along with it. This is like television news 101. And Malugian is using the tools – tools that are changing and advancing with technology to tell the story that is his beat. And this is part of the reason, the White House says, that they're upset with him. They're angry. Oh, it's alarmism. As Malugin has become an increasingly visible figure on the network, his coverage has caught the attention of the White House, which has become increasingly irritated by his reporting. During a press conference last week, Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre noted that Fox News got the heads up on the Martha's Vineyard flight before local, state and federal agencies. Oh. Leaking information to journalists to report. Heaven forbid anyone ever do something like that at the White House or on the left. We never see that, especially at the Department of Justice. Right. Never. Now, Bill Malugin is more than capable of defending himself. I don't have to come on here and do it for him. His work speaks for itself. It is accurate. He often has correct information before anyone else. And he's covering something that a lot of other people in his position, the arbiters of truth and newsworthiness, they deliberately close their eyes and plug their ears to this story. For political reasons. They cover it a little bit here and there when it gets too ugly to not mention or when there's an opportunity to get mad at Republicans like they've done recently with these governors or to accuse falsely U.S. officials of whipping migrants with a racially tinged controversy. Then they were back on the story. But day in and day out, as a matter of course, a giant national crisis of historic proportions has been by and large overlooked by the mainstream press. And because Bill Malugin has the audacity to buck that trend and to do the job and to put visuals and images along with the reporting and the statistics and to tell an accurate story. Well, that's deeply irritating to the administration. And you know what? It should be. They're irritated with him, not because he's an alarmist, not because He's distorting the truth, but because he is illustrating and telling a story that is on the merits alarming. Two million people have been captured at the southern border this year alone. Two million. Since Biden took office, nearly one million that we know of have gotten away. They were detected but not captured just entered the country in violation of our laws. Last month, among the more than 200,000 people intercepted at the southern border, a dozen of them were on the FBI terrorist watch list. We've seen that now dozens of times this year alone. Utterly obliterating previous records on that front. Simply stating these facts out loud might strike some people as alarmism. As I said, It's just the truth, and the truth is alarming, and Malugin is focusing on it, which is why he's pissing them off, getting under the skin of the White House, because what they want is fealty from journalists. Democrats believe, usually correctly, that journalists are kind of technically, you know, adversarial, and they're doing this job to hold everyone accountable, but deep down they understand they're on the same team. They're rowing the same direction. The Republicans and others, they're the bad guys. You know, we're the good guys. So row, row, row. And when anyone in the media, especially sort of the mainstream or uh, left-leaning media, doesn't go along with the beat, with the rhythm, boy, do they find themselves the focus of a great deal of abuse and scorn and anger and betrayal. You're supposed to be on our side. Now, that's not necessarily their, necessarily their expectation about our network. Trying to hold truth to power. One party power, by the way, in Washington, D.C. But Bill Malugian is under fire. He's under criticism. He's got this whole piece devoted to how annoyed the White House is at him because he's doing the job well, because he is revealing the truth about a problem that is not out of the control of the administration. It is a problem and a crisis that has been directly created by the administration. Which is not to say there were not immigration problems before under all administrations previously of both political parties. Obviously, this has been a challenge for a long time. We have not seen anything remotely like this, however, because the policies were not this disastrous. And because Bill Malugin dares to go on the number one rated network on cable and show and tell the factual truth the White House is coming after him and whispering to other journalists, hey, let's, uh, let's try to discredit this guy. Let's talk about the way he does his work. Let's make it seem like it's shady or unethical. Now, I'm so old that I can remember when... A presidential administration would criticize a journalist who was maybe saying or doing things that bothered that administration, and they went after that person individually. That was like a five-alarm fire of outrage and indignation in the media, a dangerous attack on our free press. It wasn't that long ago that that was sort of what we went with. I haven't seen all that many voices out there, independent from this network and some other folks coming to the defense of Bill Melugin. As I said, he doesn't really need it. He's a grown man. He's good at his job. But I wanted to say this as someone who has him on the show recently. I think this is pitiful, but also telling stuff from the White House. Now, by the way, there was a follow-up. I think this was today in Politico, where now I guess Democrats are feeding them even more dirt on Bill Melugin in an attempt to try to discredit him and therefore disqualify him as a serious journalist whose reporting should be paid attention to. Even though he's an Emmy Award winner, well, he's doing the wrong kind of investigative journalism. We're not even investigative. It's, it's, the story comes to you when you're at the border. Of course, he's well-sourced in all of that. But here's the the update from Politico. Quote, in response to last night's story about Fox News' Bill Melugian, a Democratic source wrote in to tell us that we, quote, left out the best part. Melugian, in the past, had a part-time job at an Abercrombie & Fitch store, which was known for hiring men with a particular physique. In 2011, so we're now, what, 11 years ago? In 2011, Melugian, who went by Billy then, oh, my God. They've got him now. Billy Malugin. as a college student at Arizona State, he said that he worked at Abercrombie and that Abercrombie was looking for a certain look to find people who had that look to work there. He said at one point he was outside studying for a test and some recruiters from the company came up and said, you've got a great look, and they offered him a part-time job. And apparently, because Bill Malugin, more than a decade ago, called himself Billy, and worked in retail. Some Democrats think that that is, like, you know, hilarious. And somehow casts any sort of shadow over Bill's work product as an award-winning journalist. And they decided, hey, let's send that over to Politico. See if they'll print it. And they admit, oh, the Democrats uh, phoned us up and whispered to us that this guy used to work at a retail store because he was good-looking and called himself Billy, whoa. I mean, I think we have a journalistic scandal on our hands here. Bill Malugin had a Y at the end of his name when he was younger. And he helped sell overpriced, like, cargo shorts to people like me who wanted to seem cooler. Stop the presses. Don't listen to what Malugin says. Ignore the drone footage. He worked at Abercrombie. pathetic it's absolutely pathetic and all i can say to bill is to have this come of in to have this type of incoming fire from the white house and top democrats laundered through a major media organization means that he is hovering over the target he's doing his job exceptionally well under often difficult circumstances chronicling a story that needs to be told that the people in power don't want to get told because they're responsible. That is the definition of journalism as far as I'm concerned. And I look forward to having Bill Malugin, maybe we'll call him Billy, back on the show as soon as possible. I'm not quite done on the border crisis. More details, maybe are we allowed to talk about it? By the way, if you're listening out there, Politico, I used to work at an Italian restaurant. I was a host. I would direct people to their tables and sometimes give free bruschetta. Going to crucify me for that? Is my commentary moot and unworthy of attention because of where I used to work? What are the rules here? I'm kind of confused. I'm not confused about this issue, not at all. And we will continue on it, hammering away every day, including in our very next segment, as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show.
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson
4: Show.
0: I'm Guy Benson, we're back. By the way, one other little note about Bill Malugin and the hit pieces and Politico planted by the Democrats against him and his reporting at the border. I had to laugh because he was responding a little bit on social media, and the first objection that I saw from him was, I don't have slick-backed hair, (laughs) which is how he was described. He did win the best male hair at Fox in our internal debate here on the show. Jesse Waters, in fact, broke the tie, and bestowed that honor upon Bill Melugin. He's got very good hair, but it is not slicked back. So that's a fact check. I thought that was sort of humorous. Part of the reason that I think we're getting kind of this meltdown over what the Republican governors are doing, attacking the messenger in uh, these various smears, I would say, of of Melugin, is because they don't really have anything of substance to push back with. It's been incoherent. For example, there's a story today in the Miami Herald that their journalists are all, you know, a Twitter about talking about migrants who were promised by DeSantis linked operatives to be flown to Delaware as part of this whole thing. And they wanted to go to Delaware. And then the flight hasn't materialized. So the migrants now feel stranded. And there's a photo of one of them looking very sad. I was going to get flown to Delaware by Ron DeSantis, but now it didn't happen. They're stranded. I'm trying to keep track here. Is it human trafficking and smuggling or not? Is it horrible and abusive and cruel to do this, or is it now horrible and abusive and cruel not to do the human trafficking if people want to go to Delaware? There's another poll that National Review reported on. By 40 points, the American people agree that sanctuary jurisdictions should have to shoulder some of this burden. So maybe they're flailing because they're losing.
3: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. And here with me in studio today is General Jack Keene, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. And General, it's always great to talk to you. It's especially good to see you.
6: Yeah, it's great. Great being here in the studio and being here with you face-to-face, Wonderful.
0: Let's talk about Ukraine and what's happening with this Russian mobilization. I think a lot of people yesterday woke up to this news, myself included, and were pretty surprised what is happening here. It reeks of desperation by the Russians. The Russian population might finally start to realize or be starting to realize now that what they've been force-fed for the last number of months is not true about how the war has been going. What are your big takeaways about why Putin decided to do this and whether or not you think it will be successful on any level for the Russians?
6: Yeah, yeah great questions. Well, first of all, he's losing the war, and he knows that. Um, and there's, there's political pressure on him now that, that he had not had a few months ago. On, on the left, there's always been pressure, why the war? We shouldn't be doing this. But on the far right, the pressure is you've got to do more. And they want full mobilization they uh, want the military to obviously improve its capabilities, and they've been very critical of the military and its and its uh, impact. So I think what Putin is 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 doing here is compromising to a degree. He knows full well that if he goes to full mobilization, then that means all of the influencers uh, in his society—not necessarily people that work for him, but generally influencers, depending on the positions they have in academia, businessmen, etc. Their kids are subject to that draft, and he doesn't want that because that will cause significant opposition to him and likely in major cities. So he's compromised at this partial mobilization, which is calling up reservists. It'll take three to four months to get them to the battlefield because they have to organize them. They have to do some retraining of them. But here's what's going to show up. People are physically unfit, medically unfit, and I think largely many of them, emotionally and psychologically unfit because they don't want to do this. They don't want any part of going into this war. I mean, the casualties that Russia is suffering on this is close to 25,000 dead, 65,000 wounded in a force a little north of 200,000. That is absolutely staggering. That That exceeds any casualty rate That the United States participated in all of our wars except for the Civil War. So, this is going to be a huge issue for him. And when they do show up, guy, I don't believe they're going to be decisive. They're joining
0: an incompetent military on the ground. Right. As unfit soldiers, we were talking to General Kellogg about this on the show. You can get a bunch of warm bodies, sort of, you know, go to the fake little boot camp and get re basic training kind of up to speed a tiny bit, then here's a gun and, and off to the battlefield where I think the increasing realization is that Russia's losing. The Ukrainians are emboldened and winning and pressing the issue and gaining ground back and recapturing cities and that sort of thing. You sort of wonder, is this a short-sighted political solution that will please basically no one in Russia and also fail strategically?
6: Yeah. And, and, and that's the price he's going to pay for it. He's, pay- he's going to pay a political price because he's aggravating a portion of his population. And there are protests in the, sh- in the street. I mean, not the kind of protests that he had back in 2011 over a fraudulent election. But he's very concerned about his population. These adverse regimes, uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they they all fear their population more than they fear the United States or an, or an adversary. And so yeah, he, this is calculating on his part politically and how, and how to manage this. He, I think, has come to the conclusion this war is not ending in months. This is, this is likely if, if he intends to come out favorably here, it will take years. And that's, that's kind of where he is in his head in, in going forward. I actually think, and you mentioned it, there's huge opportunity here for the Ukrainians. Obviously, they've had some success here, and it's been somewhat decisive. But to maintain that momentum is going to be hard. And I think the United States has really got to help them more. Now, what we did for them, two big things we've done for them, um, is one, we give them exquisite intelligence on a daily basis on where these Russians are. And even when they move command posts, they get that information. And that's why they've been so effective uh, against them. The second thing is we've given them advanced weapons, most notably the HIMARS And it's the GMARS, which is guided missile munition, 200-pound missile, guided missile that goes right to a command post, right to a depot, and within 30 minutes uh, has a 95% degree of accuracy within 30 meters. That has been devastating. But what do they need? Actually, to take back the the rest of the terrain in the south and particularly in the Donbass region, they have to conduct what we refer to... As offensive combined arms maneuver, they need the advanced fighters that they have requested. And the United States is examining this, looking at this. Uh, Because if you're going to have combined arms maneuver, those forces are exposed to enemy air power. You've got to have that kind of protection, and then you have to provide support for them. They need tanks, they need infantry armored carriers, and they need artillery to be able to do that. And the, long, the longest-range missile that the Army has is referred to as an ATACMS missile, and that goes a couple of hundred miles. The one that they are using now, GMARS, is about 50 miles, and that will give them a huge amount of depth to be able to reach all the supply lines and everything that exists in Crimea where a lot of that is coming, coming out of. And that is not happening. And the the administration has got to see this as a huge opportunity. In my mind, they are still on a path. While I applaud what they've given them in terms of these recent advanced munitions, and obviously they're organizing support from other countries. But what they haven't committed to is what Zelensky's committed to, drive the Russians out of my territory, drive the Russians out of Ukraine. And that, if they're going to do that, At full victory. Which they, that would be. they need offensive combined arms maneuver, and we should give it to them.
0: What do you make of the reports that the flights were selling out, out of Moscow, out of major Russian cities, people, when they realized, hey, we might get mobilized here and sent to the front in this war that isn't going the way that they told us it was going, people were trying to get out to the point that the government stepped in to say people of men of a certain age can't get on these flights. You have to stop selling them these tickets. I saw another headline today that the number one Google search and, you know, media or online search in Russia right now uh, is how to break your own arm to try, I guess, to become, you know, ineligible to go fight. Those cannot be encouraging signs either for the regime if they're saying, you know, hey, we got to go and, and take this fight and we're winning, but we need all these new people also. And the Ukrainians are decimated, which doesn't seem to be right Inside the country, the propaganda at least appears to be breaking down. Yeah, that,
6: that, that's very instructive, what you just said. It's it kind of comic relief to a certain degree, dealing with the arm breaking. But, yeah, it, it's instructive. Listen, the, the Russians, you've been around the Russians. It's hard not to like Russian people. I mean, they're, they're tough and hardy, and they, you know, they, they've, they've got a tolerance for a fair amount of suffering that, that other people don't have, and they certainly proved that in World War II and beyond. But they they know full well that they're not being threatened. Their livelihood isn't being threatened by the Ukrainians. They they're not they they don't have to protect their families from some enemy out there. Those people who are trying to get on airplanes and and trying to break their arms, I, I would submit that if Russia was under attack, they they'd be standing tall and be willing to fight for their families and their livelihood. They don't want to go to Ukraine. I think by now, the, narrative, the false narrative that was out there and, and stood for at least 120 days, you know in terms of "This is Nazi genocide, and yeah. we're going to punish that." right. And, and that, that has seeped back. I mean, the younger people, even though the, a lot of the social media is shut down, they have ways around that, and many of them are in universities overseas. To get, they're seeing all the media. So here we are seven months later. And you can't stop the truth from filtering into that society and permeating it. And that's
0: what's happening. When you hear – and this was something else that we asked General Kellogg about and he had his own analysis on this. When you hear Putin again talk about using nuclear weapons and saying it's not a bluff, I'm not bluffing, is that a bluff? Could he get desperate enough where tactical nuclear weapons start to get deployed in this? And if so, then what? Well, it,
6: yes, it's possible, but I think it's very remote and very low. And we're doing exactly what he wants us to do here. We're all getting spun up on it. And, and I, I, I take another path. I, I, when you analyze this thing, first of all, Putin, while he's made some strategic mistakes, has always been a rational actor. And I completely believe he still is that rational actor. And he's not a, f- a fanatic in that sense. The so, so when you you, lo-
0: you don't think he's gone crazy or he's you no. know about to die and so he doesn't care about no okay no,
6: I don't think so at all and and and, and just how he's handling things uh, is an indicator of that. But the the fact is is that he knows full well that if he sets off a tactical nuclear weapon inside Ukraine. First of all, it likely could be some damage to his own forces and to his own people, so he'd have to be very careful where he did it. It wouldn't have significant military value because he would need to do several of them, not just one of them. Uh, This is not a strategic nuclear weapon and it's designed, primarily, we we put these together for uh, enemy adversarial troop uh, formations. But he knows full well that will expand the war and the United States is unlikely to come out and say what they would do, but I think what we would do and what NATO would do is use our air and missile power to destroy the Russian military inside of Ukraine. NATO and the United States is not going to tolerate a nuclear weapon going off in Europe by an adversary country. My God, that's, that's just not acceptable. If that was the case, then NATO will begin to erode because he would use – Nuclear blackmail on them ha- after having done that, so what we would what we would do to uh, uh, putin 's forces and supply lines and depots and munitions is devastated. He knows that using a tactical nuclear weapon to prevent a loss would actually guarantee his losing, and that I believe is where We really are. So why is he talking
0: about it? If he's talking about it, just he said this.
6: Fear-mongering because he wants to stop. He knows the United States, Britain, and some Eastern European countries have provided valuable munitions and arms to the Ukrainians, and it has had a devastating impact on his people. He wants to use this, wave it in front of us, wring our hands, talk about it, get all spun up about nuclear weapons so that... One, the Europeans take a knee on supporting him. Even the United States backs off. We don't want to provoke Putin. I mean, he heard Biden in the early stages of this. Why aren't we doing X, Y, and Z before the invasion? We don't want to provoke Russia. We use the word over and over and over again. The German chancellor and the French president talked to him on a regular basis. They would go to the negotiating table right now today And they would want Zelensky to stop and give up everything that Russia has. That's where their mind is. The Brits are different. The Eastern Europeans are different. So he sees, if I can wave this flag in front of people and create fear-mongering inside of them, they'll take a knee and stop the support. That's what he's after. Also, he wants them to ease up on the sanctions. So the more we spin this thing up and, and start talking about the fear of nuclear war and nuclear holocaust, we're playing right into his hands.
0: Yeah, and I think the likelihood of either of those things that you described happening, the, the aid stopping or the sanctions being relieved or loosened, I, I think extremely unlikely right. in the near or medium term. And then, of course, you know, the negotiating table would require the Ukrainians to be there and agree to anything, and I think right now, especially now, they have no reason they have no. to give concessions. They're winning.
6: You couldn't get them to the negotiating table now. And it's actually in Putin's interest to say, let's do a ceasefire because it stops the counteroffensive. Uh, it's in- interesting uh, if he's going to do something like that. We forecast that was clearly one of the possibilities that he would do. Ukrainians wouldn't agree to it. But he would want it to stop the counteroffensive, and then he could be able to reposition his forces and, and get, get
0: the new 300 trained up. Yeah, exactly. And then try again, right? Yeah, when it yeah. suits him. Right. So, F, after, after the winner. And the goal, I guess, would be if he comes out and calls for a ceasefire, to try to make the Ukrainians look like the bad guys for saying no. And if they happen to say, yes, it's because he's using it for his own nefarious purposes, it'd be kind of devious, but also a little bit transparent because we're talking about it right here. Uh, we'll see what he does. But it's been a bad few months for him. There's no question about that. And hopefully it continues to be even worse. Oh, from I totally from my agree. Perspective. General, it's always great to see you. Jack Keane, retired four-star general. He is the senior strategic analyst here at Fox News. He chairs the Institute for the Study of War. And uh, what a treat to have you here in studio.
6: Yeah, it's wonderful to be here, and also talking to your great audience.
0: Absolutely. All right. Thanks, General. Let's step aside. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show.
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: As we roll along here on The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, some more jitters economically. Mortgage rates now rising to the highest level since 2007 after the latest uh, Fed interest rate hike, which was yesterday. That went up as a result of inflation. Gas prices now back on the rise. For the first time in almost 100 days, gas prices have ticked upward. And we had mentioned this. When the Biden team had changed all their rhetoric from we have no control to congratulations to us as gas prices came down a bit over the summer towards the end and into September, there were some experts and folks in the industry warning that that trajectory might not be sustainable and the cost could go back up. The price could go back up. And at least we've seen a bucking of that hopeful trend this week, with gas prices on average increasing to three sixty-eight a gallon yesterday. So that's the first time in nearly 100 days, as I said, that gas prices have gone up, and they remain 15% higher than they were last year. That's other, I think, very important context in this. Relatedly, this is a story from U.S. News. Here's the headline. Economic indicators continue to drop, signaling possible recession. Well, technically, we are already in a recession, right? Back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth, and we had everyone at the White House trying to pretend that that wasn't real and that definition didn't count. It's a constant changing of definitions to try to paper over their failures with rhetoric and games. But the argument could be, is it really a serious, biting recession? Technically, it's a recession, but is it a, you know, a bruising recession? Well, now that you've got this major economic index that tracks a bunch of different factors, most of its components that they write about in this story have now dipped into the negative, signaling more struggles to come. A forward-looking measure of the U.S. economy fell again in August with most, uh, with most components in negative territory the conference board said on Thursday. Index is another sign that the economy is slowing in the face of higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve. Central Bank raised rates again on Wednesday, with Chairman Jerome Powell acknowledging that attempts to corral inflation will cause, quote, pain to both consumers and businesses. As we have Democratic control of Washington, D.C., with an election coming up in seven weeks. Another hour of this show is coming up next. Don't go anywhere.
3: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: Our middle hour is underway here on the Guy Benson Show live in D.C. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free. It's on demand every single day. Let's give you a Fox News alert here and an update on the markets. The Dow looked like it was in the green all the way up until a few minutes before the close and then looked like it dropped precipitously, ending down today 107 points to 30,076. Joining us here in studio in Washington, D.C., the Tony Snow Studio, is our friend and colleague Martha McCallum, who is fresh off the air, Down the hall here Mm -hmm. from the story on Fox News Channel, which she anchors. She's the executive editor also there every day. Uh, She's got her book, Unknown Valor. She's got the Untold Story podcast. Lots going on, Martha. And your life was very UK-centric for the last two weeks or so. Mm. You're back home. It's great to see you. Hi. Great to see you. I just want to, in the time that we have together today, reflect back on... We talked about the Queen's life together uh, on the air, but then the celebration of her life, and the way that they honored her. You were there to cover basically all of it for a week and a half. We had talked on this show about, I guess what they called Operation London Bridge, Mm -hmm. this elaborate plan that had been in place for years for whenever the Queen eventually would die. And we were like kind of joking about, I wonder, was there a Fox News Operation London Bridge? Once this happened, like get Martha on the plane. (laughs) Like how quickly did this all come together and how did you guys decide – how much to cover this story, yeah. which has international and American interest, but also so much happening here at home. Just talk about that whole process. I'm fascinated. Yeah.
2: Well, so actually I was on my way to D.C. because uh, I was coming here for a couple of days. I had scheduled to do two shows here, and I had set up a bunch of meetings that I was going to have with people on the Hill, just sort of getting warmed up for the midterm elections. And I was about an hour and a half from home in the car and started getting these messages saying that the doctors were keeping the queen comfortable. And so then New York, we started going back and forth and they started saying, well, you know, are you closer to New York right now or closer to D.C. right now? And I said, you know, we better pull over. So we ended up turning around, going back to New York. When I got back to New York, uh, she died. uh, The announcement came out at 1 p.m. And then we made the decision pretty much right there and then that I should get home as quickly as I could, pack a bag and be on a flight to London that night. So I did that. And then I was on the air for Fox and Friends the next morning in front of Buckingham Palace. So, uh, you know, we had certainly talked about it. We had done an obit package that we had ready to go, which is typical in news organizations with a person of that stature. And we had updated it recently. We had covered the Jubilee in June. Um, But I, I think it was surprising how quickly it came, honestly, because on Tuesday we watched the Queen welcome Liz Truss and invite her to form a government a process she had done with 14 prime ministers in the course of, of her reign, which is astonishing. She looked pretty spry that day. She had her cute little cashmere sweater and her kilt on, and she was smiling, big smile. And two days later, she was gone. And the word was that on Wednesday, her advisors had said that they wanted her to skip uh, an, like an online meeting with the Privy Council, and she died on Thursday. So... I think you know when when you know people who are older and ailing I, I do believe that sometimes people kind of say okay this is the, this is my time you know I'm I'm ready and I think she was at peace with an incredibly incredibly satisfying life and uh ready to maybe go rejoin her husband Philip who she loved very much who died at the age of 99 and um and her family she was very close they used to call themselves we four she, her dad, King George the Sixth, her mom, the queen mother, and her sister, Margaret. And she was rejoined to all of them when they lowered that coffin in King George's chapel, a chapel that she had commissioned so that her family would be back together in the end.
0: There was so much pomp and circumstance in a solemn way around this. And the operation, the whole plan yeah. then played out. So many speeches and events culminating ultimately in the funeral, which was nine or ten days later. In terms of your coverage, what was the most interesting thing that you were looking for as someone who has covered the royal family for a, a lot of your career?
2: Well, you know, there's, there's no one you can even compare this to. And back in 2017, The Guardian put out a story that was a huge breaking story. They had uncovered the plan for Operation London Bridge in great detail, and it was all mapped out in like a 12 page story in the Guardian. Here's what will happen. Here's how it's going to happen. The first call will go from the private secretary of the Queen to the Prime Minister to let, to inform them that the Queen has died. Instantly, all of these things kick in, all of these just incredibly complex arrangements, the movement of flags, all of it across the country. So it was pretty amazing to start witnessing that whole program as it began to kick in but it was like clockwork okay i mean i don't know if for people who may have watched the crown uh, it, it makes me think of this scene with queen mary where she asks she's very sick and she's in bed and she's smoking you know cigarette after cigarette after cigarette she was quite the character and she says oh shut the window um and her the you know person who's helping her says, "You know, do I like the music or something like that she said, oh, they're rehearsing my funeral again
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: outside her window so this is common right that they're preparing these events in an in an extraordinarily detailed way um I, I thought that it was pretty fitting that she died at Balmoral, which is the reason that I say that it wouldn't surprise me if there was just sort of um some element of of timing and well, she just loved
0: it up there she I loved it there loved it's it. a
2: beautiful part of the world, and she loved. To be outside, she loved nature. She loved hiking in those mountains. She loved riding her her fell ponies. She loved her animals up there. And she, driving very and she fast. Was, yeah, she was an engineer in World War II. She begged her father to let her join the armed forces. She felt very much that she wanted to make a sacrifice that everyone else was making. And she was trained as a mechanic and a driver. And, and you know, and, and until she was really old, she used to hit the put the pedal to the metal in that old Range Rover and drive it around the the Scottish uh, estate.
0: Less than a minute, Martha, I know mm-hmm. that you and your team, amid your coverage, took some time to go pay your own respects. Very yeah. long queues. Just talk about that experience quickly. Yeah, you know,
2: I mean, as a reporter, I wanted to experience what was being talked about every single day, that it was this extraordinary experience, that all these people were online. And, and the British people, you know, person after person after person, the diversity of this crowd guy, you know, black, white, Asian, old, young, from all over the United Kingdom, I'd ask them all, why are you here? Every one of them. Same answer. Well, because I love the Queen. Everyone, okay? No matter where they were coming from in their world. And there's no one else that gets that kind of response. Think of you can't think of one person in the United States who would get that kind of response or pretty much anywhere in the world. Not like that. So that that was pretty interesting to witness and you know, twelve thirty PM we made it in there and it was it was pretty special. I'm glad I did it.
0: I'm glad to see you. Glad you're home. Martha McCallum, our guest here in studio on the Guy Benson show. Let's take a quick break. We will be right back with much more still to come on the program today. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Well, there's a new soundbite from Stacey Abrams that I'd like to talk about. She is the Democratic nominee for governor down in Georgia. She's a conspiracy theorist and election truther, and if those were the things that were accurate about a Republican candidate, they would be widely denounced as a threat to democracy, but because she's a Democrat, she is a superstar on the left because they actually don't believe in democracy or science when it doesn't suit their political interests. That is the unfortunate reality, and we've talked about that multiple times. Polls out just in the last few days have her trailing Governor Brian Kemp in a range of six – polls out in the last couple of days alone have Abrams trailing Governor Kemp down there by somewhere between 6 and 11 points, depending on which survey that you look at. So she was giving some comments, and this was on abortion this time, and she had a very interesting comment or assertion about the heartbeat of an unborn child. Here's what she said in Cut 20.
2: There is no such thing as a
7: heartbeat in six weeks. It is a manufactured sim designed
0: In case you couldn't quite hear her, she said, quote, there is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It's a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. I have absolutely no idea what she's talking about. We can have a debate about when cardiac activity begins in an unborn child. When a full heartbeat is established, at what point that independent heartbeat represents a life worthy of legal protection, those are worthwhile discussions. But that's not what she's saying here. She's claiming that what is detected on an ultrasound, what is detected in utero, that cardiac activity at six weeks, that person or that entity's cardiac activity That was manufactured apparently for the purpose of letting men control women's bodies or something. What an absolutely strange and bizarre way to frame the issue. And it's also fascinating to watch a bunch of journalists line up and try to defend this conspiracy theory and scientific misinformation being spewed by Stacey Abrams because it's part and parcel of their agenda on abortion. Because the Democratic agenda on abortion and the media's agenda on abortion is one and the same. One journalist, for example, quotes the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, which defines the, quote, fluttering of cells in the embryonic heart tube as cardiac activity rather than a heartbeat. Okay, I understand it might not be a full like adult level heartbeat at six weeks, but if there is detectable, audible cardiac activity It is not a stretch to call that a heartbeat. What does cardiac mean? It relates to the heart. If someone told you, hey, don't worry, your cardiac activity is about to stop, how would you react to that? Would you say, well, will my heartbeat stop? This is a very strange parsing on this. And it goes back, I think, to the goal and really the necessity Of the pro-abortion, especially later in pregnancy, pro-abortion crowd, which I try to distinguish from pro-choice people. I think there are good faith disagreements. And then there's radicalism. And in the radical category, it is necessary in order for them to justify their beliefs and maybe sleep at night. They have to dehumanize the fetus. They have to dehumanize the unborn person. They will not allow themselves to believe that. Until that child is fully born, and some people go even further than that, it's not really a human being, which is why you get all this dehumanizing language and these technical changing of definitions. In fact, John McCormick at National Review points out that for quite a long time, Planned Parenthood, the number one abortion provider in the country, had listed the early heartbeat starting at six weeks on their own website. Because that has been the understood scientific reality for many decades. But because that then interacts unfavorably with the abortion politics that they want to play, and they don't like Republicans or conservatives or pro-lifers of all stripes pointing out that there's independent heartbeat, there's an independent cardiac activity, whatever you want to call it, six weeks into a pregnancy, that is inconvenient when it comes to Discussions surrounding these issues and the persuasion of many people that, okay, maybe we should start thinking about where to draw ethical lines on abortion when there's a separate heartbeat that kind of starts to feel like a separate person. They don't want to have that discussion. So Planned Parenthood went back and changed their own definition of the heartbeat and when it starts on their own website. They told the truth for a long time until it became politically untenable. Then they changed the quote unquote science. Which is why we're hearing this type of nonsense from Stacey Abrams and why a lot of people are rushing, tripping over themselves to affirm what she's saying, even though it's wrong. Glenn Kessler, the fact checker at The Washington Post, says, for what it's worth, fetal heartbeat is a misnomer. The ultrasound picks up electrical activity generated by an embryo. The so-called heartbeat sound you hear is created by the ultrasound not until 10 weeks Can the opening and closing of cardiac valves be detected by a Doppler machine? Well, if there's activity, cardiac activity, generated by an embryo, what would we call that exactly? You don't want to call it a heartbeat? What would you call it? And fine, for the sake of argument, let's just say it's 10 weeks. Not six weeks, but 10 weeks. Right around the same time, by the way, an unborn child around 10 weeks into the pregnancy starts to develop his or her own individual unique fingerprints. So you've got the unique DNA composition from conception. You've got unique fingerprints starting to form nine or ten weeks. You've got the heartbeat, according to the fact checker at The Washington Post, who says cardiac activity that you can hear in week six doesn't count. It's really week 10. Let's just say week 10. Let's make week 10 the cutoff. Would any of these people who are out there objecting and going to bat for Stacey Abrams, would they agree to a 10-week abortion ban? With a few exceptions, but overall, after 10 weeks, heartbeat, fingerprints, is that the time where we can draw a line and say we're not going to end an innocent life at that point? And the answer for almost all of them is no. They also oppose 15-week bans and 20-week bans or 24-week bans. The official position of the Democrat Party right now is all nine months elective abortions on demand for any reason, paid for by all of us taxpayers. That's their position. So when they say, oh, so, you know, six weeks, it's not it's just cardiac activity, it's not a heartbeat, it's like fine. When do you define the heartbeat? They say, well, it's ten weeks. I saw another person citing another definition saying, well, it's really not fully a heartbeat till twenty weeks. Let's just take One after the other. Six weeks, do you draw the line there? No. Okay, how about 10 weeks? Is that okay? Oh, still no. What about 20 weeks? Still no? It's about abortion politics. It's not about science. And Stacey Abrams, I think, is just particularly clumsy in the way she's talking about it, saying that it's a manufactured sound, like some sinister plot by men to control women's bodies, to allow women to hear the cardiac activity, a.k.a. heartbeat, ...of the child growing inside them six weeks into pregnancy, it is very, very odd. And it is dehumanizing. It is a project of dehumanization by design. By the way, there's a doctor that I follow on social media, Pradeep Shankar, who responded to the fact-checker at the Washington Post... ...saying, Glenn, this is scientifically and medically incorrect 100%. Ultrasound can't detect electrical activity. Who told you otherwise... The NPR link you cited is wrong. I wrote extensively about it at the time. It is true that the valves in the heart develop later. However, the cardiac muscles that are located in the embryological heart are contracting. They are, in fact, moving inward and outward. That is how you define a beat. Is the beat the same as a fully grown adult beat? Of course not. We're talking about early biological development. However, cardiac tissue is contracting. Which literally is what a beat is. To say otherwise is scientific misinformation and cannot be treated otherwise. And Stacey Abrams says it's actually a manufactured sound in a conspiracy theory. And she supports no limits on abortion for any reason ever. As does her party. Which then turns around and has the gall to pretend that it's everyone else that are the extremists. The 80% of Americans who reject their radicalism, we're all the extremists on the issue. That's what they're selling. And I think pro-lifers or even just moderate pro-choicers, it doesn't take a lot of effort to push back. You just have to have the courage and the information to do so. And that's a battle we're willing to have morally, ethically, politically here. And The Guy Benson Show continues next.
3: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through today's program. Thank you very much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern and around the clock for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. All the information you need is right there. And with us now, once again, is Katie Pavlich, editor at TownHall.com, where I also work, and a contributor at Fox News, where I also work. We happen to be friends on top of it all. Katie, great to have you back. (laughs) Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I would like to start by talking about this awful story out of North Dakota, and we're still getting some more details on what exactly happened. But according to officials in that state, a man in his 40s had some sort of dispute or argument with a teenager, an 18-year-old. They argued about politics, and the older man admits to chasing him down, the teenager, in his car, striking him and killing him. So it looks like vehicular homicide. Charges have been filed. The individual has already been released on bond. And there's a few different angles to this story aside from the awful, horrible thing about an 18 year old who was killed. Some people might say, well, this is a local news story. Why is it being discussed on a national show? Well, it turns out that the killer, in his basically his confession, told authorities that he believed the kid was part of an extremist group because he was a Republican. He was a Republican extremist, so that, I guess, set him off, which led to this pursuit and then the killing. And this comes just days after President Biden gave a big national speech warning that extremist Republicans are a threat to the country. Katie, I'm not blaming Joe Biden for what this guy did, but I guarantee you that if— The political roles were reversed here. We would be having a big, acrimonious, nasty national conversation about politics and rhetoric and scapegoating and political violence, and we're not really seeing almost any of that outside of right-leaning media.
1: No, it would be the the top headline across the country, and understandably so. But because it's a Republican victim, uh, the media doesn't seem to want to touch it. And broadly speaking, you know, you mentioned President Joe Biden's speech in Philadelphia, where he was flanked by two Marines and the red lighting, and you know, tripling down on this idea that he thinks that Republicans are extremists. And the question I have is, you know, how what what is what does it take for Democrats as a whole to condemn this kind of behavior uh, we saw the uh, the uh, assassination attempt of Supreme Court justice Brett Kavanaugh over the summer uh, we now have this young man who was killed by someone who admitted he did it because he believed this this teenager was part of a Republican extremist group um, you know we've condemned it I, I don't know why there is isn't easy outcry from the left to say this is wrong and we cannot tolerate this in, in our society. Uh and and that the the book should be thrown at the, the guy um for, for doing this. Um and that it, it can't be the way that we operate our politics in this country. You know, voting is a substitute for violence uh and yet we've seen so much of this over the past not just six months, but you know, during the summer of twenty twenty when Democrats fully embraced a rioting in the streets for the sake of social justice. Uh, So it it is a double standard. And in terms of where it goes and where it, where it ends, uh, it doesn't seem like this is a great path for the country to go down. Should there be more instances of of this that do occur? It's not just a local news story that doesn't occur in a vacuum. We've seen this kind of attitude from the left for a couple of years now.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the example of the assassination plot against Justice Kavanaugh, it was ignored so much by the national press that just days after it happened, not a single Sunday morning show based in D.C., the politics shows covered it at all, with the exception of Fox News Sunday. They all ignored it. The president of the United States has declined to comment on that. He's not just saying that Republicans are extremists. He's saying that they're dangerous. They are threats. And he wouldn't say a word. We've heard nothing from him directly on the plot against Justice Kavanaugh. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, explicitly refused to condemn a series of terrorist attacks and firebombings against pro-life pregnancy centers. That's gotten virtually no attention whatsoever. Here is an explicitly political murder of an 18-year-old by an adult because the adult felt like the teenager was an extremist Republican. When that is out there in the zeitgeist, it's the big talking point on the left. And I think the reason that we hear nothing is because political violence and supposedly dangerous rhetoric is a big emergency that requires national urgent attention when one side does it or is accused of doing it. And when the other side does it, it's just sort of fine or not worthy of discussion. That's it. It's really not more complicated than that. And that's why there's so much cynicism, I think, out there where it shouldn't be hard to condemn violence and violent tactics and this sort of thing and over-the-top rhetoric, it just gets galling, Katie, when one side of the political aisle is always the target of breathless coverage whenever anything happens or is alleged to have happened, and then it's just kind of like a big national shrug and move on when the roles are reversed. I, I mean, I know it sounds like we repeat ourselves on these types of stories, but it is a pattern and it's very frustrating.
1: Well, and it's not just that President Biden gave a speech about extremism in the country. I mean, this has been a full federal government Biden administration project. I mean, the Department of Justice has an entirely new team dedicated to going after political extremism. Uh, they went after parents who showed up at teachers uh, or at a school board meetings, for example, And we're going to use the Patriot Act to to go after them. And yet when it comes to real political violence that we're seeing, including the murder of a teenager uh, by a man who admitted that he did it for that purpose, you'd think they'd be interested in investigating that kind of political extremism, but they're not, which is why the American people have so little faith in these law enforcement institutions because it's very clear that they're not interested in just ridding political extremism from all sides of the aisles, they are interested in promoting a narrative. uh, Attacking uh, attacking
0: Republicans, right? That's it. It's an opportunity to attack Republicans.
1: But not just verbally, going after them with the Department of Justice while they ignore cases like the one we discussed today.
0: Yep. I saw one tweet that went viral. My friend Mary Catherine Hamm had amplified it on social. And this user writes, an unarmed teen got chased run over and killed by a middle-aged guy who said he felt threatened by the kids' politics. No protests, no riots, no corporate statements or donations, no president saying he might have been his son, no national media coverage, no national conversations. I mean, that is pretty much spot on, Katie, and that's why I think a lot of people... Do not trust the media. Media looks around saying, oh, gosh, there's a credibility emergency. There's misinformation. There's disinformation. These people's brains are being poisoned. And they never seem to stop and look in the mirror very long.
1: Well, in in this particular case, not only was the victim uh, a Republican, but he was a white Republican. And therefore, there are two strikes against him when it comes to what the media is willing to tolerate as a victim in this country, regardless of the circumstances. And it's disgusting, despicable. And it certainly isn't treating everybody with the same, uh, you know, treating people the same in terms of coverage. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous.
0: Oh, they're not even trying. And then – Let's go further into the media angle because it has to be said, and I know conservatives complain about the media all the time, and sometimes it feels like we're just beating that same drum. But as long as they give us new examples and new fodder, all we can do is call it out and use our platforms to try to shame them on some level. Mark Hemingway, looking at the Associated Press coverage of this story in North Dakota, and he tweets, the AP managed to cover this incident and not even mention the Republican extremist angle. The media writ large cannot possibly wonder why much of the country despises their industry, right? This is a story about a politically motivated killing of a teenager and the sort of ugly truth about the political motivation and what happened there was just glossed over by the Associated Press in a way that it would never, ever, ever, ever be if some right winger had murdered a left winger after – Donald Trump had given a speech about how Democrats are extremists and threats to the country. I mean, it's just not fathomable that the coverage would look the way it does under those circumstances. We all know it, and I guess we just have to say it, and I just don't know if anyone out there in media world outside of certain precincts really care. I mean, they can listen. Maybe they occasionally, a guilty pleasure, they listen to this show, and they might say, well, maybe he's got a point, but they just move on and keep doing the same thing.
1: I think the question is why. I mean, why do they just not want to acknowledge, you know, because they have this narrative that Republicans are the only side of the political aisle that has extremists who are in their ranks? I mean, how hard is it for people in the media and for Democrats just to say, yeah, it's inappropriate and wrong to run over teenagers because they have a different – and kill them because they have a different political perspective than you do? That's just not a hard thing to do, and yet they won't do it. But the good news is is
0: that – are
1: doing it. And at Town Hall, Mia Cassell has been going through this case. She has all the details on what happened, yep. who this guy is, yep. uh, all, you know, his concession, his record, what the court documents say. And we're going to continue writing about it because it's an atrocity. Uh, and unlike everybody else, we're willing to tell the truth about it.
0: Yep. And we're covering it here. You mentioned our colleague at Town Hall has been all over it. You asked the question, why? Why is the media doing this? I think the answer is pretty simple. They have their narrative that they are wedded to because it is also the Democratic Party's narrative. Their narratives are very often one in the same. This is their side. It's their team. It's their tribe. We're getting very close to an election and disrupting the tribe's narrative about dangerous extremist Republicans being a threat by highlighting something like this would be very inconvenient and uncomfortable for the ruling party, the Democrats— have the press in their pocket. Journalists want the Democrats to do well in the election, and so they're not really going to emphasize things that they don't want to emphasize, which is why they're getting dragged kicking and screaming into talking about immigration, for example. They don't want to do it because it hurts the cause, and they're down for the cause. I really don't think it is more complicated than that. Here's one other example on the media, just since we're flogging away, Katie. I'm sure you've seen at least a few headlines about this uh, murder out in Nevada where the allegation is that an elected Democrat murdered an investigative journalist. And the journalist had been looking into him and had exposed this politician for a while for various allegations of corruption and and misconduct. And what officials say uh, in the case is that this elected Democrat then went and murdered the journalist for doing his job. The Associated Press, here they go again, wrote a story about it the other day, That did not mention the partisan affiliation of the elected official who committed the murder. And again, broken record time, Katie. But if a Republican official murdered a journalist, there is a zero percent chance. That that detail would get left out of any news story, and that news story would be a much bigger news story because that's the narrative. Republicans are hostile to the media, and they attack the media, and now they've literally murdered a member of the media. Look at what they're doing. But because it's a Democrat, it's gotten like a few little headlines here or there, and the Associated Press doesn't see fit to put the little D in parentheses next to the suspect's name. I mean, it just speaks for itself.
1: Well, and and not only would it be a a bigger story than it is, every single Republican running for office on a local level to the national level would be asked about the story nonstop. It would be a 24-hour news cycle about what happened. And yet because it doesn't go with the narrative, they're not willing to cover it. I haven't seen any statements from the White House press corps. I haven't seen any statements from these journalist groups. Uh, which is quite amazing considering they've made statements a lot about the things that Donald Trump said about them. Right. And when tweets. People, you know, said, you know, tweet, yeah, mean tweets about the press. That got way more coverage than a Democratic uh, elected official allegedly murdering an investigative reporter for doing their job, and yet they don't care. I mean, it really is amazing what they're willing to just completely – Brush under the rug for the sake of their narrative, while at the same time claiming that they are objective and they only care about telling the truth, not promoting a particular political party or political narrative. It's just garbage.
0: Yep, their words mean nothing because their actions tell the real story. Katie, very quickly, totally unrelatedly, I just wanted to get any big picture thoughts that you might have on these protests in the streets of Iran, with women in particular putting their own personal safety and freedom and lives at risk, doing what they're doing, standing up to this regime. It's very inspiring to see. I know we have a lot of people in the United States who prattle on about bravery and courage and truth to power, and I think a lot of that's often overheated, overblown, self-congratulatory nonsense. This is the real McCoy on that, and I just wonder how you're watching it from half a world away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that what those women are doing is, Obviously, very courageous, and I hope that it brings change to Iran. But I, I see it similarly to what happened under Obama with the Green Revolution and uh, the people of Iran rising up and us thinking that maybe this was it finally, that the regime would be overturn, overthrown, and then asking Obama for help. And he kind of just ignored it and allowed it to, the, the, that movement to get quashed. So given that Joe Biden was his vice president at the time and now he's in charge, uh, I, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, don't have much faith that he will be helping them or joining their cause, especially given how desperate they are to get back into the Iranian nuclear agreement.
0: Yeah, and there's reports and rumors out there about the concessions that they're agreeing to, far from siding with these protesters against the regime. It looks like they are actively working to enrich and prop up and strengthen the regime with the prestige and power of the United States government because of this, I think, obsolete obsession that's this ideological thing on the left dating back to Obama. I think you're absolutely right to bring that up. Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. Katie, always enjoy it. Talk soon.
1: Talk to you soon, Guy. Thank you.
0: We'll be right back after this.
3: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, I think it was last week we mentioned this story out of Chicago where the CEO of McDonald's, based in Illinois and now based in Chicago, he had sounded the alarm, as many others have, about the really serious crime problem in that city. I was just there yesterday. I was talking to a friend who lives there, and she says it's really bad, and not just in the quote-unquote usual areas. It is something that everyone is talking about. She said she was on business in New York City, and even folks in New York that she was seeing were saying, whoa, What's going on in Chicago? It's really rough. And that's the point that this CEO of McDonald's was making. And it's self-evidently true. Just look at the crime statistics. And things are about to get worse with this crazy safety act that the Democrats have passed in that state. So the CEO said something that is manifestly correct. And Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, took some time off from her normal pastime, which is attacking Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, To scold the CEO of McDonald's saying basically that he's ignorant, he should go educate himself, she said. Maybe she's the one who needs to educate herself. Look around the city. She's lashing out like it's a problem to point out the glaring crime crisis in the city of Chicago. Like it's his fault for noticing it and saying something. We also talked recently about that ring footage from a doorbell capturing a violent attack in a nice neighborhood in Chicago. A woman was attacked by a gang of robbers violently. Her screams... We're very disturbing to listen to. That's now in a political ad in Illinois. And the governor there, Governor Pritzker, a Democrat, he's attacking the critics of crime, saying that that's a racist ad because it was a white woman who was attacked. And it appeared that the suspects were black. So it's racism. Yes, yeah, just a violent attack in the middle of the day caught on camera. It's racist to talk about. So shut up. That's the leadership position from Lori Lightfoot to Governor Pritzker in Chicago and Illinois. You're ignorant. You're stupid. You're racist. Shut up. That's their answer to the crime problem. And then, of course, defending the Safety Act, which will make things worse starting in January. Good luck out there, Illinois. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Senator John Cornyn of Texas here in studio. That's straight ahead. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free and on demand every single day when the show is over, around a little over an hour from right now. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts free on demand every day. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. I, in fact, had one in my journeys this week. I recommend you check it out if you're 21-plus only. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. Well, here in studio with me, we are very pleased to see in person U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas who sits on the Senate Finance, Judiciary, and Intelligence Committees. Very busy guy, a regular on our show, but I think it's the first time you've been here in this studio, Senator. So it welcome. is.
5: It's good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So you represent the people of the state of Texas, and Texas is very much in the news these days because of the immigration crisis that is finally getting national attention. I think it took a lot of baiting, frankly, by your governor and the governor down in Florida and out in Arizona to force the issue on this. The media and the Democrats seem to have taken the bait, and here we are actually discussing something that has been a very serious problem for two years. They've been studiously ignoring it to the best of their ability what do you make of the criticisms that we're hearing very you know high decibel criticisms that this is human trafficking and it's cruel and it's inhumane what for example governor abbott pioneered moving some of these migrants from these overwhelmed border communities up to cities and areas that call themselves sanctuary jurisdictions
5: well i think the uh, criticism from the biden administration is pure hypocrisy Uh, they've been flying and busing migrants to uh, the interior of the United States for the whole time that President Biden's been in office. I think you're exactly right. Um, You know, we've been expecting them to pay attention because the numbers are so huge two million this last year alone border encounters it's a hodgepodge of people who are economic migrants asylum seekers criminals drug runners i mean it's that's part of the problem with an uncontrolled border you don't know what you're getting and um i think uh, it was a brilliant act of uh, of uh, the governors to uh, Put this on the radar screen of some of these major city mayors, particularly in these sanctuary cities. Um, They're not showing a lot of empathy for the migrants like they did when they weren't coming to their town. But this is uh, designed, I hope, to provoke a conversation and negotiation to actually stop the crisis that's occurring at the border that they have studiously ignored.
0: Yeah, although the problem is there's a roadmap to solving the problem or at least greatly ameliorating it. They don't want to go there. The Biden administration will not go there. I think it's completely political. They would rather have the chaos and the danger and the death than do something that might make it seem like maybe Donald Trump was right about something all along.
5: Well, their political base uh, will not tolerate anything short of open borders. and um, But I think uh, when you start thinking about the hundred and eight. 1,000 Americans who died of drug overdoses last year, 71,000 from synthetic opioids like fentanyl that come from China. The precursors go to Mexico and make their way in the United States. And then I just gave a speech on the uh, Senate floor where we talked about the uh, criminal gangs in various communities throughout the country that are their primary distribution network. And when you think about the spike in crime, the gun violence, a lot of that is uh, fights between gangs for market share and territories. So this all starts with a open border policy, which is disastrous in terms of the humanitarian crisis and the public safety
0: problem. The secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, by definition, is charged with securing the homeland. Correct. We see what's happening right now and has been happening month in and month out. Is he derelict in his duty?
5: Absolutely. Um, I don't know what will happen if uh, Republicans get the majority in the House. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, even articles of impeachment uh, voted on at some point.
0: Would that be justified?
5: I think so under the circumstances. I I don't say that lightly. um, But when he will tell under oath uh, members of Congress, when you ask about what we've just described here, uh, he will say the border is secure. So will the White House press secretary. So will Kamala Harris and others when we know that's not true. And, uh, you know, they have these delusions. Uh, I was with Secretary Blinken. We were discussing the annual refugee cap, which is part of the Immigration uh, Committee's uh, uh, jurisdiction, the Judiciary Committee. And he said, well, this is really about – building up the uh, government, the governing bodies in uh, in Guatemala, Nicaragua, and elsewhere. He's talking about nation building. I mean, who thinks that we can actually do that? I don't believe it.
0: And also, there's been migrants apprehended under Biden from 150-plus countries.
5: That's an important point and lost on people like Kamala Harris, who thinks you can go to Guatemala and have a meeting and say, well, we're dealing with root causes The fact of the matter is, uh, for anybody who's paying attention to it, and I know you are, is that for a price, you can make your way to the southern border from anywhere on the planet. And as you point out, as the border patrolist tells me every time I visit the border, they have people from countries all over the world. I mean, you have Ukrainians show up. You have Iranians show up. You have people from countries of interest. We've had people on the terrorist watch list, people who are convicted criminals. So... Nobody's suggesting that all of the people coming across the border are fit in those categories. Of course not. But but the problem is when you have an uncontrolled border, you just don't know.
0: That's exactly right. And you said they're paying a price for a price you can get here. And that price is going into the pockets of one of the largest and most ruthless criminal enterprises on earth.
5: They don't care about these migrants. They care about the money. And just to nail down the point – This idea of flooding the zone with unaccompanied children and migrants is part of a plan, part of a scheme or strategy to divert the attention of the Border Patrol so they can process these migrants so that they can't stop the drugs that come across. And like I said, those killed 108,000 Americans last year alone.
0: If you can believe it, Senator, it was only last week that the White House held a celebratory festival at the White House on the day that the inflation numbers came out and were worse than expected when we all knew they would be bad but not that bad. Terrible timing, horrible optics. The split screen was so horrific that even some of our competitors had to comment (laughs) on how it didn't really play terribly well for them politically. But there seems to be just no end in sight in terms of what the Democrats want to do. Keep spending money. They have no answers on inflation at all. On 60 Minutes on Sunday, President Biden diminished the increased inflation by saying, well, it only went up an inch. Mm-hmm. And that might make it into some political ads this fall, I might suspect. As you look at the issue of inflation, and part of the reason it wasn't even worse in August was because gas prices were still elevated but down a bit from June and July. There are some indications that that trend might be reversing other prices for home heating and stuff coming back up as we head into the fall and then into the winter – There are a lot of red flags still flapping out there, and it feels like the people running the country have no answers except to say that they're not to blame for any of it, even though all of their previous predictions about the consequences of their policies have been wrong.
5: Well, prices have gone up 13 percent since Joe Biden was sworn in on January the 20th, uh, 2021. And uh, it may be that gasoline prices have gone down because demand has gone down because people can't afford it or they've had to made it make other plans food prices again up double digits what i'm really concerned about two things from the economy standpoint you're going to see continued tightening by the federal reserve like they did yesterday by three quarters of a percentage point raising interest rates of course that raises rent home mortgage costs and the like but you're going to see because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the cutting off of Russian oil and gas, global markets for the natural gas that's needed for people to heat their homes is going to go through the roof. So there's a lot of pain out there that's left to be uh, experienced as a result of just uh, ignoring the root causes of that problem
0: right root causes they're wrong about the root causes on immigration they're wrong about the root causes here you can point at putin and i'm all for blaming putin for a lot of things it's a contributing factor yeah. on the gas prices no doubt but you've got the administration we've talked about this before senator of course as an energy state you know energy right. producing state that you represent this administration is saying oh well you know look at what putin's doing it's putin's price hike all of that they have maintained an exceptionally hostile policy posture toward developing and expanding american energy production here at home that's another ideological project of theirs that is actively hurting american people
5: absolutely well you know you would think that after putin invaded ukraine and europe realized the box canyon they found themselves in in terms of energy security even countries like germany um, had uh, which are very much invested in green energy uh how depending on a single source of energy is uh, is dangerous. And, but it you can't turn it on a dime. takes a while to build the infrastructure. takes a while to build the LNG import terminals and build the ships that transport it.
0: Well, but they what the Biden people say is, oh, there's all these leases that the gas companies that are very greedy, they're just not using them. We keep saying go ahead and use them, and they refuse to use them. I know that's been contradicted by other data. Say This is like the – fewest number of permits issued or whatever in yep. in many years by this team but they've got their talking points yeah and it just doesn't line up with reality and certainly the lived experience of so many <laughs> americans right now
5: well and then you remember when uh the president goes to uh, the kingdom of saudi arabia and asks for Mohammed bin salman and uh the leader of that country to uh, open the spigot so you know this is one thing that Thanks to the domestic production of oil and gas, we had become a net exporter of energy. Now the president wants to reverse that. And oh, by the way, that is one reason why we've been so involved in the Middle East, because that was the uh, that was our access to energy.
0: It was was a talking point across the aisle in American politics, in speeches and ads forever. We want to reduce our dependence on foreign oil. And then we did it. And you've got one political party committed to, I guess, stopping it now because you can't be doing that here for environmental reasons. Very quickly, before we let you go, (laughs) I know that Senate Republicans are going to try to force a vote to formally end the emergency declaration on COVID-19. The timing is not subtle here. President Biden, in his uh, CBS interview, said the pandemic is over. He said it twice. So if that's the president's view... Shouldn't the emergency powers go away? Do you think the Democrats are going to go along with that, or is this going to be a symbolic vote that they block for political and and money-spending reasons?
5: No, uh, Rahm Emanuel famously said, never let a crisis go to waste. So they're going to try to do everything they can to allow the president to circumvent uh, Congress when it comes to these matters, just like he's trying to do on student debt, quote, forgiveness or cancellation, using an emergency powers uh, provision from some long long ago uh, statute we passed. We need to claw back a lot of that authority, whether it's a Republican or or Democratic president, so that Congress is more involved. We're the ones most immediately responsible to the voters, certainly in the House every two years, the Senate every six years. But um, yeah, they're they're not going to go quietly, although uh, my view is the president says it's over,
0: it's over. U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, our guest here in studio, the Tony Snow Studios at the Fox News Bureau in our nation's capital. Senator, great to talk to you as always. Great to see you here. Hopefully we'll do it again. Thanks, Guy. John Cornyn on The Guy Benson Show. The happy hour continues right after this break.
3: Guy Benson will be right
0: back. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. So some interesting news, exciting development here at Fox. We told you a few weeks ago about the decision by the bosses here to elevate Shannon Bream as the new anchor of Fox News Sunday. And she made her debut earlier this month. We had her on this show just before her first time in the permanent anchor chair on FNS. And she's off to the races there. That decision then created an opening In the midnight hour Eastern time on Fox News at night, which is the show that she has anchored and hosted since its debut for a number of years now. And I've been on that show fairly regularly throughout its tenure since it's been on the air. And because Shannon is moving up to Fox News Sunday, I think clearly a promotion and a great opportunity for her. She'll also be chief legal correspondent still at the network. She's a very busy person. Lots of responsibilities. That midnight show, on top of it, five days a week, was going to just be too much to have on her plate. So they had a couple of rotating guest hosts, and people were doing a nice job. I was on, I think, with Rich Edson last week when he was guest hosting. And then this week it was announced that permanently the new host of Fox News at night at 12 midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. out on the West Coast, is Trace Gallagher, who is – And has been a significant presence on the news channel for years. He's been our guest here on this show. I'm a fan of Trace. I think he does a really good job. I think he's very talented. He's versatile. He's filled in in a lot of different roles over the course of his career here at Fox. And for him to now have his own real estate for an hour, I think, is just a great development. And I look forward to being on the air with him on his show. And I was sending him congratulatory emails about it yesterday. We were going back and forth. And it's just great. And I think he'll be doing it from Los Angeles, which makes sense. In the West Coast newsroom, it's a more civilized hour out there, right? Sort of prime time out there. So for Trace to be holding down the fort from the West Coast where it's 9 p.m. Pacific, I think it just all kind of fits. So congratulations once again to Shannon and now a big congratulations to Trace Gallagher. We will definitely have to get him back here on this program very soon. Now, after the show tonight little over half an hour from now, I will be wheeling my bags just across the way here to Union Station here in D.C. and then hop on the train up to New York. I have a very busy TV schedule coming up this next stretch of days, so I just wanted to put it out there. Some programming notes since we're talking about Fox programming. Here's the TV side. The radio will always be the same, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, and the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. On television. We'll be juggling a fair amount. So tomorrow, Friday, I will be co-hosting Outnumbered as one lucky guy in the middle seat on the curvy couch. So that will be noon Eastern Outnumbered. Looking forward to that. It's a fun group on the couch, including our friend Kat Timpf. I'll be on Cudlow tomorrow on Fox Business Network in the 4 o'clock hour. I will then be co-hosting Saturday and Sunday the big show at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's sort of an ensemble show, four of us. Each day, this weekend's panel will be myself, Alicia Acuna, Lara Trump, and Joey Jones. I'll also be doing Fox and Friends on Sunday morning. On Monday, I've got America Reports up in New York in the early afternoon. And then I'll also be on Gutfeld that evening. That's Monday night. Back to D.C. on Tuesday for special report in the panel with Brett. So I just take a breath. That's what I've got coming up, so if you want to catch me on the TV side of things, many opportunities to do so over these next five days. And as I said, radio always right here, very consistent. You know how to find us. When we come back, we will continue with our happy hour. I want to go back to part of our conversation with General Jack Keene earlier in the program. And then the home stretch upcoming, I have some questions for producer Christine. I think there might be a slight confessional in order from her. We'll ask her about that. It's all coming up. Stay with us. It's the Guy Benson Show.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Back half of the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Earlier in the show in our first hour today, General Jack Keane joined us here in studio a retired four star general chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. A lot to get to with Ukraine and Russia. We asked him all about it. Here's just a flavor of that conversation. What are your big takeaways about why Putin decided to do this and whether or not you think it will be successful on any level for the Russians?
6: Yeah, yeah, great questions. Well, first of all, he's losing the war and he knows that. Um, And it's there's political pressure on him now that, that he had not had a few months ago. On, on the left, there's always been pressure, why the war? We shouldn't be doing this. But on the far right, the pressure is you got to do more. And they want full mobilization. They uh, want the military to obviously improve its capabilities. And they've been very critical of the military and its, and its uh, impact. So I think what Putin is, is, is doing here is compromising to a degree, he knows full well. that If he goes to full mobilization, then that means all of the influencers uh, in his society, not necessarily people that work for him, but generally influencers depending on the positions they have in academia, businessmen, et cetera, their kids are subject to that draft. And he doesn't want that because that will cause significant opposition to him and likely in major cities. So he's compromised at this partial mobilization which is calling up reservists. It'll take three to four months to get them to the battlefield because they have to organize them. They have to do some retraining of them. But here's what's going to show up. People are physically unfit, medically unfit, and I think largely, many of them, emotionally and psychologically unfit because they don't want to do this. They don't want any part of going into this war. I mean, the casualties that Russia is suffering on this is close to 25,000 dead, 65,000 wounded, in a force a little north of 200,000. That is absolutely staggering. That That exceeds any casualty rate that the United States participated in in all of our wars except for the Civil War. So this is going to be a huge issue for him, and when they do show up, Guy, I don't believe they're going to be decisive. They're joining an incompetent military on the
0: ground. All right. As unfit soldiers, we were talking to General Kellogg about this on the show. You can get a bunch of warm bodies, sort of, you know, go to the fake little boot camp and get re basic training, kind of up to speed a tiny bit. Then here's a gun and, and off to the battlefield where I think the increasing realization is that Russia's losing. The Ukrainians are emboldened and winning and pressing the issue and gaining ground back and recapturing cities and that sort of thing. You sort of wonder, is this a short-sighted political solution that will please basically no one in Russia and also fail strategically?
6: Yeah, and and, and that's the price he's going to pay for it. He's he's going to pay a political price because he's aggravating a portion of his population, and there are protests in the the street. I mean – not the kind of protest that he had back in 2011 over a fraudulent election, but he's very concerned about his population. These adverse regimes—China, uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea—they they all fear their population more than they fear the United States or an, or an adversary. And so, yeah, he, this is calculating on his part politically and how and how to manage this. He, I think, has come to the conclusion: this war is not ending in months. This is, this is likely it, if he intends to come out favorably here, it will take years. And that's, that's kind of where he is in his head in, in going forward. I actually think, and you mentioned it, there's huge opportunity here for the Ukrainians. Obviously, they've had some success here, and it's been somewhat decisive. But to maintain that momentum is going to be hard.
0: And I think the United States has really got to help them more. My full interview with General Jack Keane here in studio in D.C., available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of that free podcast on demand every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. It's the first day of fall, and we're going to talk about how much we love fall. But that's not really the topic. The real topic is Christine and back-to-school night and what happened with her daughter, and we'll get into all of those details right after this.
3: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show from D.C. today, New York tomorrow and Monday. A lot of TV coming up, as I've mentioned. Glad that you're here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free and on demand. It is the first day of fall. And I am very excited about that because fall is probably by far my favorite season. It's my favorite weather, best temperatures, sweater but not heavy coat, right? It's not the freezing, frigid winter, but it's not the sweltering, humid summer. It's just a little crisp. You've got football. You've got my favorite holiday, which is Thanksgiving, in the middle toward the end of fall. So... I am always excited when you first get that first slight chill in the air. Again, not too cold, and some people whine and complain that summer is gone. I'm ready for summer to be gone probably midway through August, honestly. So it's the first day of fall, and I just wanted to shout out my favorite season. Hello, autumn. We've been waiting for you. And part of the fall is back to school. If you have kids and you're a parent and they're – In really any kind of school, public or private, you are familiar with the annual ritual known as back-to-school night where parents schlep over to the school and meet the teachers and they get to hear a preview of what's going to happen in the academic year. And my parents would do that every year, and we were very excited to hear what they thought when they came home. So last night was back-to-school night for producer Christine, or maybe it was the night before. It was this week. Producer Christine and her husband Bobby went to -to back-to-school night for their daughter, Megan, who is in third or fourth grade at this point, elementary school certainly. Christine, is it fourth grade? She's in fourth grade. Fourth grade, okay. So you were all excited. You were telling us it's back-to-school night. Uh, You were excited to meet everyone and chat with your fellow parents and talk to the teachers and all of it. And then we get uh, a text message. From you to the group last night, our little group texting here at the show, and you said that back-to-school night was a big success, which is a lovely message to relay, except there was a photograph accompanying this message, and it was a cocktail. It appeared that you were at some sort of establishment having a cocktail, and I was a little bit confused by what was going on here. Uh, You said that back-to-school night was a success. There's your cocktail. I responded, obviously, more of a success than Sober September, which was your stated goal at the beginning of the month, although you started like four or five days into September. lasted, I think, less than a week, and now you're drinking on a school night during back-to-school night. What was the timeline here? Did you go after back-to-school night to a bar or something?
7: Yes, we did. So we took advantage of the fact that we had a babysitter, obviously, so Bobby and I could both attend back-to-school night, and it was a success. We sat in Megan's classroom. I got to read the lovely note that she gave to Bobby and I. I looked through her desk. We talked to the teacher, figured out what's going to happen, you know, this year, Um, got told Megan's a little chatty, so we got to work on that. I have no clue where she gets her chattiness from. (laughs) But we do have to work on that a little bit. And then uh, we left and we went to a fine establishment right near our home. So um, I hadn't had dinner so I could order something very quickly. And it just so happens they had some martini specials. And I mean, the lemon drop martini just looked delicious. How How can I deny myself or the bartender to make one? And I I just wanted to say I think I never told you one of the other rules about Sober September is if you have a babysitter, I mean, you can't waste the night, can you?
0: Yeah, so Sober September was a complete misnomer from the very beginning. You drank through the long weekend at the beginning of September and then instantly started changing the rules to allow yourself multiple exceptions to drink, including Mm -hmm. apparently on a school night, on a Wednesday – on back-to-school night because of some babysitter rule? Well,
7: I mean, as parents know, and you'll understand this guy, it is very rare that we have a babysitter, especially during the week. I'm usually sound asleep by 9, 9.30. So when Bobby and I – and we got to finish a little earlier than expected, <laughs> back-to-school night. So – um You know, we didn't want to just pay the babysitter for one hour. That's not like a lot for her. So we were kind of like doing her a favor as well. You know, she got two hours of pay. Bobby and I got to go. Very, very
0: selfless of you. It was a big favor to the babysitter. Yes. Look, I am not questioning the wisdom of taking advantage of having a babysitter at home so you can go out and have an enjoyable evening. Correct. Not at all. I am saying that you cannot come on and boast about doing Sober September and then just not follow through at all and find multiple excuses to drink. Also, we have just sort of skipped over, I think, a crucial detail. I just heard quite a euphemism, I believe, from you. You said that you got to leave a little bit earlier than expected, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does that mean exactly, Christine?
7: So Bobby and I felt that after the first half an hour of back to school, we got the gist of what was to come, you know, what is expected of Megan. And we didn't feel we needed to stay there for the back half of the hour. Uh, I guess you I'm sure you understand that.
0: So you uh, left early is what you're saying. You skipped out yeah. on back to school night halfway through it to go drink. So. That's the upshot here.
7: So when we left the classroom, we were supposed to make a right. You were supposed to, like, spend 10 minutes in the music class and then 10 minutes in the Spanish class and then 10 minutes in, like, the art class. And so as all the parents were going right, Bobby and I just made a left and went right down the first uh, stairwell and back to our car.
0: To go and have an evening nightcap.
7: Correct. And to discuss, Uh you know, our child's education and Mm -hmm. what we thought about the whole night. That lasted a half an well,
0: hour. Yeah, because it wasn't the whole night. You had much less to discuss because you skipped half of it, including multiple different electives and you know special supplemental classes or whatever you want to call them, enrichment programs. I don't know what you call those things. But I just wonder how do you think that reflected on you or on Megan for these teachers who will perhaps notice that her parents were there at one point and then suspiciously not there? for half of the programming at back-to-school night?
7: You know, it was pretty chaotic, the back-to-school night. I don't know if they really organized it as well as they should have, so I'm not really sure anybody would realize whether Bobby and I were there. And I think we, like I said, we did the most important part. We sat with her teacher, and, you know, I got to write my letter. I I remember writing that letter. You know, Judgey Joyce really wasn't a back-to-school person at night. She I, she just—they didn't do that. So I remember writing those letters growing up, and I'm like, "This is going nowhere. I don't even know if my mom's going to show up." So like, I feel like I won half the battle already. I was there. I wrote my letter so to Megan.
0: You're arguing that because <laughs> your mother was totally was, derelict and awful. did not go at all to back to school night, uh-huh. you are making an improvement by showing up and leaving early to drink.
7: Yes, each generation does better than the one before.
0: All right. So Megan might actually be an attentive parent.
7: I am a very attentive parent. Megan, listen, Megan, Megan is like an easy kid. We say she's like a cat. We don't bother her. She doesn't bother us. She, you know, she's very smart. She can do her homework. Like,
0: well, apparently parent. a little chatty, a little chatty cat. Yeah,
7: yeah. <laughs> a little chatty. We did, we did hear that. We, we were told that she, she does like to talk and apparently she, she finishes her work a lot quicker apparently than the other kids. So then she just thinks it's time to go up to talk to the teacher. The teacher's like, I have to remind her, like, I'm not her friend. (laughs) She can't just talk to me about her day.
0: What if the art teacher or the music teacher or the Spanish teacher also had important feedback about your daughter and student for you? You're just not going to get that information, right, because you decided to play hooky.
7: Well, this wasn't like, you know, the teacher-parent conference, Obviously, I'm not going to play hooky on that. I don't think they really – Is that obvious?
0: Is that obvious? (laughs) Yes. By the way, because I I was literally driving in here today and we were doing our planning call. I have been traveling so much in so many different places. I was in California. Then I was in Illinois. Then I was in Wisconsin. Then Illinois again. I go to New York tonight. And I just momentarily forgot what day of the week it was. I could not for the life of me remember what day it was. And then – Dan kindly mentioned that it's Thursday, and I said, "Okay." He said, "Well, yeah, tomorrow's Friday," and you just very confidently you were like, "You know, guy, if you you know your brain is scrambled, you've been traveling so much, if you need to take some time off tomorrow, at any point, just hand me the microphone. I can just take over on the Friday show." And you know, I thought about that, and I said, "Well, that could be interesting. Like, hey, let's let producer Christine do the five o'clock hour, the happy hour on a Friday." The problem is. It could be like we come back from break. The music's playing at five thirty-five in the home stretch. We're getting close to the home stretch. The back half of the hour, and the music just plays and plays and plays. And there's no one there to talk because somewhere Christine's off at a bar. She's already got her Cosmo in front of her. She's like, yeah, I did the first half. It's good enough.
7: I see. I'm laughing, but you're kind of making me look like a very bad parent here, and I don't appreciate that. Am, this is why. Am I, I... I
0: making you look like that, or are you making you look like that?
7: I'm telling you right now, you talk to any parent out there, they get a babysitter during a weeknight and they get like a little time to spend with their husband, maybe over a cocktail, could be a Coca-Cola. I'm not going to judge, but they're going to do it. I think we got, like I said, we we understood what was happening at school. We get where Megan, you know, mm-hmm. what we need to work on. And also Megan, in her letter, she, she wrote to mommy and daddy saying, you know, thank you for sending her to the school, and it's so nice, and she knows that we work hard to do that, and, you know, she can't wait for to hear about what we think about her teacher. And then she wrote, and mommy, you were going to meet all my friends' parents, and then in parentheses, I'm sure you will talk to, and then she wrote in caps, all of them tonight.
0: <laughs> well, but the truth was, no, it was only some of them because maybe you would have gotten around to chatting with all of them except you were bang. You were like hightailed it out of there halfway through the evening. So that was back-to-school-ish, like back-ish-to-school night for producer Christine. And this, you know, husband Bobby fully implicated in this one as well. This is not just a a cookie caper. This is both of them. So I'm not – I have no editorial comment on this. I'm not shaming anyone. I'm not saying it was good parenting or bad parenting. I'm just putting the facts out there and making sure the audience has a fulsome understanding and a full picture of what happened, and then they can make decisions – about whether or not to judge you. And that's their call. I can't help what they think.
7: Can I just say one last thing? You may. So we we, we got to the school. We got everything we needed to. Then think about this. You know, the way the, everything is with inflation and the prices of things. Like, we went to a restaurant, a local restaurant, and we were able to provide money to them. We were able to provide money to a babysitter an extra hour. I mean... So really,
0: skipping night. out on your daughter's back-to-school night was a civic service on your part, is what you're arguing here.
7: Well, we did it all. It was such a huge success. We did it all. I can multitask. You
0: should, see, you should see War Wyatt sitting here in <laughs> D.C. across the glass, just <laughs> shaking his head. I think, I think we know how one person feels about this. And I guess the audience, again, they can take in all of the data points that we have now shared. Christina has now given her final spin. I think that it is Jean-Pierre-esque in its quality, in my personal opinion. And with that, we're out of time. Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show is tomorrow from the Big Apple. Be up in New York for lots of TV. We'll give you that schedule again, of course, each day as necessary, as helpful. In the meantime, have a great evening. Thank you so much for listening. It is The Guy Benson Show.